This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Just a couple of days ago, I was chatting with a member of our team, trying to figure out if there was ever a way of recording and editing a Red Line episode now that we could hold on to for a while, release it in six months' time, and still have it be full of valid information. And whilst there are some regions that are pretty rusted on, when we began discussing the Middle East, we quickly realized just how shaky and fluid the region has become over the last 12 months. We very quickly realized that we couldn't talk about the Saudis, as after signing that deal to normalize relations with Iran, things seem a lot less predictable than before, and it's much harder to tell where things might lead. We couldn't talk about Israel either, as the country is currently seeing the largest protests in the nation's history, and there's a decent chance that the current government may not be there in six months. For the same reason, we can't talk about Turkey, as increasingly it's looking like the Turkish elections are neck and neck, and the nation's leader since 2003 may be tossed out in just a few weeks' time, resetting an entire nation's geopolitical doctrine. We couldn't talk about Oman as they're having a national leadership crisis. Syria no longer has Russia keeping things in check. Sudan just exploded in internal power fighting. Yemen is beginning to intensify, and Iraq is looking shakier and shakier. The most uncertain country for us, though, was Egypt to a point where we could only safely predict about a month out ahead, let alone six. You see, the country of Egypt is currently in a free-falling economic nosedive, in a very similar situation, and much like Sri Lanka last year, may end up seeing the country approach the financial brink. Unemployment is skyrocketing, there's a population crisis, housing's in a disastrous state, the tax burden has mostly moved to sit upon the poorest in society, the currency is devaluing, foreign debt is growing, there's less and less water, agricultural output's down, and the military has ignored decades of warnings to begin to divulge themselves from the economy. And now add to this a pandemic that wiped out the tourism sector, and the two countries they purchased 80% of their wheats and grains from, Russia and Ukraine, going to war with each other. The nation of Egypt is now looking like a flip of a coin between the government implementing the well-overdue economic reforms and changes, and in doing so have a high chance of sparking the next Arab Spring, or, on the flip side, having the military refuse to get off their own personal decades-old gravy train, implementing none of the changes and watching the economy slam into the ground, possibly taking several of the other shaky Middle Eastern economies with them. This is a pivotal moment for Egypt, but will they be able to pull out of this nosedive? Will the military go along with these reforms, or is the region's largest populace about to go through an economic catastrophe? Well, that's the question we're going to be tackling here this week, and to take us through how we ended up here and what compounded all these issues, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Armed and Dangerous I come from a strip of Egyptian society that is massively concerned with democracy. On the other hand, I am from Egyptian society, and I can tell you that very often democracy has not been the one overriding concern of Egyptians. Now, for people who say Egyptians don't care about democracy, that's complete nonsense. Egyptians very much care about democracy. Muret Mabouk is a senior fellow and founding director of the Egypt program at the Middle East Institute. And before that, she was previously the director of communications for the Economic Research Forum, before being appointed associate director for publishing operations at the American University in Cairo. Muret has over 20 years experience with print and television journalism throughout the Middle East. And she was the founding publisher of the Daily Star Egypt, now the Daily New Egypt, which at the time was the country's only independent English language daily newspaper. 
and we're thrilled to have her on the program today. Egypt has been occupied by one set of people after another for a long time. Now, we had a revolution in 1952 when the military overthrew the king and shot the British out, mostly to the overwhelming delight of the, you know, the vast majority of the population. But then the military um, stepped in and pretty much have been there in one form or another since. You want to bear in mind that Gamal Abdel Nasser and um, Sadat and uh, Mubarak and uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi are really just sort of the customer service section of the army, if you like. So with very brief interludes, we had the Muslim Brotherhood in power for about a year after our first really free elections in 2012. And they bungled matters to an extent that they made every mistake that I would have thought of, and quite a few that, frankly, would never have occurred to me. And the vast majority of the population wound up hating them with passion. And really what that did was shove the country straight back into the military's arms. The fact that the economic situation has always been such an issue sort of indicates a level of mismanagement of the economy that has been fairly consistent. And all of that combined has really sort of conspired, if you like, to keep Egyptians limited in their demands for democracy and freedom of expression. It doesn't mean that they don't want it or that they don't value it. It just means that other things, generally speaking, putting food on the table, has been more urgent. A lot of people may not realize just how influential the military is throughout Egyptian society, and in particular, the Egyptian economy. They run most of the state companies and manufacture and supply everything in Egypt from medicines to fridges, often also granting themselves monopolies of certain industries. Can you take us through a bit of this and take us through just how embedded the Egyptian military is throughout the domestic economy? The military has become entrenched in Egypt's economy to a degree that, frankly, has become detrimental to the economy. Now, the military was always involved, has always been involved in the, in the economy pretty much, as I said, after the 1952 revolution, but they were sort of more in the background. With the election of uh, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the military and the economy came to the fore more in the sense that the army has stakes in many companies. The army owns companies. Those companies that are not owned by the army often have a retired general at their head. In some cases, the presence of the army was appreciated in the economy was appreciated by people because the army consistently produced goods that were economically viable in the sense that people could afford them. I mean, the Egyptian market is terrifically rapacious. And sometimes when people couldn't afford things on the market, the, the army would be there to produce cheaper pasta, cheaper bread, cheaper, you know. So people had access to it, and therefore that was deeply appreciated. The army is the largest contractor in the country. It builds roads, it builds infrastructures, and it builds great roads and infrastructures. The problem is, if you're a business, it's almost impossible to compete with an entity that is entrenched, that has access to cheap labor, that pays no taxes, and therefore it's almost impossible for you to compete. As a result, the private sector has not done what any private sector in any economy is supposed to do, which is be the growth sector of the economy. So Egypt's economy is not growing the way it should be. And this brings us to the current economic crisis unfolding in Egypt at the moment. With the currencies in free fall, inflation is soaring past 33%, the state owes $155 billion in external debt, and that number is growing quickly with the weakening Egyptian pound. 
And on top of that, sales taxes soared to making up nearly 48% of the Egyptian state revenue, meaning that poorer Egyptians are bearing the vast majority of the tax burden now. But this isn't even the first financial crisis Egypt has been through in recent times, with the state already having taken massive bailouts from the Saudis, the Emiratis, the US, and the IMF, or International Monetary Fund. As we see this new economic crisis worsening, how does it compare to, let's say, the crisis of 2014? In some cases, the presence of, of the army has been detrimental. And in general terms, the state has way, way, way too large a role in the economy. Now, that particular issue has just been addressed by the IMF in its latest loan. And you want to bear in mind that this loan is the fourth loan that Egypt's had from the IMF in the past six years. Now, there have been criticisms of the IMF in that it wasn't holding Egypt's feet to the fire enough and that somehow the IMF was at fault. But I think people forget what the IMF does. The IMF isn't there to hold your hand. The IMF was set up to help countries pay off their debt. And as long as you pay the IMF back, then you know, you're a good client and Egypt pays off its debt and is, is a good client. The problem is Egypt's economy has had serious structural issues that have needed to be addressed consistently over the past 30 years and have not been addressed. They've been put off because either they were politically too tough to, to pull off or because they were economically advantageous to people at the, the top of the economic heap. Matters have just snowballed. Now, the, the best comparison here would be 2014 when Egypt was just in terrible position there just come off its seven, second revolution. First one was a revolution in 2011, or an uprising, if you like, and then there was a coup in 2013. The 2011 revolution being the Arab Spring that saw the ousting of long-term Egyptian leader Hosni Mubarak and ushering in a brand new Muslim Brotherhood government led by Mohamed Morsi, who later would then be couped in 2013 by now President Abdul Fattah el-Sisi with the backing of the military who've now been in power in Egypt for almost a decade. There is absolutely no doubt that what happened in 2013 was a coup, but there's also absolutely no doubt that it was vehemently, vehemently wanted, demanded and needed by the vast majority of the population, because by then the government had become intensely polarised, about maybe 10, 15 percent of the population rooting for the Brotherhood and everybody else wanting them the heck out. So Egypt was possibly heading towards a civil war. And therefore, the, the coup, when it happened, was vehemently wanted by the majority of the population. Now, at the time, the Gulf countries did what the Gulf countries had done to date, which was come in and help out with, you know, bank deposits to prop up the economy. However, since then, few things have happened. The structural reforms that needed to be addressed that I've spoken on before were not addressed. And... When Egypt got a large IMF loan in 2016, it cherry-picked the reforms that it needed to tackle. One of them, for example, was the removal of the subsidies, which are a huge drain on the GDP. And I've personally been calling for the removal of the subsidies for the past 20, 25 years. But my feeling is that they should have been done over 10 to 12 years, not over three and as a result, the Egyptian citizen had to tighten their belt so much that honestly, they were just sort of, they were just having to punch in new holes into those belts just to, you know, just to get along. 
there weren't other structural reforms that needed to be paid. The state still had a huge outsized role in the economy. There was still the reliance on hot money, which you know can leave whenever it wants. The private sector still wasn't being allowed to do what it was supposed to do, and everything just sort of snowballed. The fact that these structural reforms were not being addressed is it's a little bit like riding a skateboard without a helmet. You're fine as long as you don't hit any bumps. But what happened in Egypt's case was that it was skateboarding without a helmet. It hit a bump and promptly fell down a hole because you got two two events that were no fault of Egypt's but that hit Egypt hard because it was peculiarly vulnerable to them because of the structural weaknesses that it had. The first was the pandemic, which was bad news for everyone. Of course, you want to bear in mind that one of Egypt's major hard currency revenue earners is tourism. So you can imagine what the pandemic did to tourism. It was decimated. And then after the pandemic, just as Egypt was trying to drag itself out of that hole, you had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, what happened then was fairly immediate in the sense that Egypt is the world's largest wheat importer, and 80% of that wheat comes in from Russia and Ukraine, about 50% from Russia and 30% from Ukraine. Now, Egypt had seen this coming, and to their credit, they had stockpiled, they had, you know, they thought they were doing the right thing. The problem is this has dragged on for longer than anyone thought. What happened was that Egypt budgets an amount for the amount of wheat that it's going to have to buy. Now, when that happened, it found that not only was the wheat not really available, but it was having to pay more for it in hard currency that it really didn't have out of its budget. You also want to have the problem that Egypt has been managing its currency exchange. I mean, the, the Egyptian pound was pegged to the dollar, and Egypt had managed its currency essentially by if the market needs dollars, then the central bank releases dollars. If it doesn't, then the central bank buys them. But then that's not a free-floating currency. And because it was managing dollars, uh, and because there was this wheat crunch, and because Egypt was having to spend more to buy the wheat that it needed, you got a shortage of uh, hard currency on the market. And that was, I mean, that that loss was exacerbated by the fact that, as we said, the Egyptian economy had an over-reliance on hot capital. And hot capital always behaves precisely the same way. In times of stress, it leaves developing countries for developed countries. So, I mean, <laughs> Egypt lost 20 billion just in the first three months of the year. And it just, it decimated its, its foreign currency reserves which in turn affected imports. I mean, you can see how all of this is snowballing. So the Egyptian economy suddenly just got smacked to its knees. And for clarification, hot capital being a finance term for overseas investments that often get put into riskier countries and short-term projects. It's money that comes in quickly, but also leaves very quickly, as these often aren't long-term deals. And when this capital leaves quickly, it often bankrupts projects reverses expansions, and eliminates workforces. So as the country begins to enter crisis, all this hot money leaves, exacerbating what was already a deep unemployment crisis within the country. And this unemployment crisis is only getting worse as the Egyptian population continues to explode, with the stats indicating that almost 700,000 new Egyptian workers are entering the job market each year, and youth unemployment is now up around 18%. 
which for context, the US is about 7.5%. And as bad as this sounds, all of this is getting even worse as business closures continue to climb due to the inflation and rapid cost of importing into the country. Add to this the fact that agricultural output, which employs nearly 30% of the country, is also going down at the moment due to a lack of water. And with all of this having effects on the Egyptian economy, we're now seeing the emergence of the mobilized women movement, a movement for Egyptian females demanding more jobs and rights for women, which again, I think is great. But female participation in the workforce right now in Egypt is only at 14%, meaning that even if this movement convinces just 50% of Egyptian women to get a job, we would be adding another 17.5 million women into a huge pool of Egyptians who are already unemployed and competing for a shrinking number of jobs. Things are bad and they're getting worse. So how do you see this all playing out in the medium term? I've always maintained that the biggest threat to Egypt's security is not Islamist extremism, which I don't discount, but I don't think it is. I think the biggest danger is the 400 to 700,000 entrants to the labor market um, annually who need to find jobs. Now, you mentioned the lack of, of women. I mean, you know, female unemployment is even higher than male unemployment. But if you were to take the gender out of the equation, which you don't want to, but if you were, uh, there's the fact that about half the country is under the age of 30. And it is a huge, huge problem. Now, Egypt has often been criticized for building these huge projects. I mean, the, the new administrative capital, for example, cost a bomb. And, you know, it, Egypt's been criticized for that. But one of the reasons why things were this like this were being built was to drag down the level of unemployment, which they absolutely did. I mean, the, the new capital, building the new capital was a gamble. The idea was that it would be built and then foreign direct investment would come in and everything would be hunky-dory. But again, that's a gamble and gambles are predicated on the fact that all things considered, factors not changing, things will turn out well, thank you very much. But it doesn't always work out that way. And the employment provided by this kind of heavy infrastructure is temporary. So once those things are built, then what? So the government is having to scramble on providing employment for these people. However, we are now at a stage where the economy is in such a tight strait that those changes are going to have to be made if you want to pull out of this. And as we mentioned earlier, democracy might not have topped everyone's wish list, but economic stability does. So if you're not providing democracy, but you're not providing economic security either, then what are you providing? As a government, you cannot be in that position because Egypt, like the rest of the Middle East, has what you call a social contract. And generally speaking, what that's been understood as for most of the regions, because we provide you with a living and you acquiesce politically. That's really the contract. So if you're not providing the economic security and stability, what good are you? And no government wants to be in, in that state. So if Egypt wants to get out of this in one piece, it is going to have to move on making those changes. Because if not, I think the, the consequences are very, very, very serious. Economic problems seem to be becoming more and more commonplace at the moment, with even nation states like Sri Lanka coming very close to national collapse. And after successive disasters like COVID and the war in Ukraine, we're seeing increasingly more and more nations being pushed to the very brink. But what we haven't seen is a big nation go down yet. 
the nation that holds a linchpin over an entire region. But there are some who worry, the way Egypt's going, that we might just see that. What happens if the Egyptians can't pull out of this nosedive? Or what happens if the Egyptians refuse to take the IMF loans and instead turn to Russia or China? How does that change the regional dynamic? And what happens if there's a revolution in Egypt over the cost of living that kicks off another wave of movements right across the Middle East? What happens if things get worse in Egypt? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Top of the Pyramid Egypt is one of those countries that always seems to be on the cusp of crisis. The big crisis in it for Egypt right now is sort of structural and long-term and, and therefore produces serial crises. And that has to do with the economy and the degree of control by the military over the economy. They haven't gone through some of the market-based reforms that some other economies have done. As a, a friend of Egypt and a proponent of U.S. alliance interests in the greater Middle East, what worries me most is the inability to resolve political tensions within the country. This, to some extent, is a lingering effect of the quasi-revolution under Morsi and then the Sisi and, and the government having had enough of that particular experiment and moving in in what some have described as a coup. There's been these dalliances in, in the strategic sense with non-Western powers, that's not unique to Egypt. Uh, there was some cooperation on rocket and missile uh, programs that went back to Cold War that actually Egypt was conducting with North Korea. That was a long source of tension between the U.S. and Egypt. And of course, there's been problems in Libya that Egypt has a hand in, but not just Libya. What you want with Egypt, I think, is for them to manage their own domestic political and security situation well enough that it doesn't become a source of instability regionally because they touch so many different countries and so many different regions just by virtue of their size. And then on top of that, the basic transaction that has stood for really since 77 or so, which is peace with Israel, keeping the Suez Canal open and functioning, access and overflight rights for the U.S. and a generally pro-Western, or at least not antagonistic to the West, strategic stance. So. All these other problems are sort of long-running and endemic. They're going to have political sclerosis, at least for another generation. They're going to have economic crises that will be cyclical and be very unpleasant for the Egyptian people. Uh, they're going to have this need for reform that is not met by the pace of actual reform. But for people who watch Egypt over the long term, none of this is really new. Uh, the, the question is, how's the health of the transactional relationship on top of that? Dr. Rich Alson is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and the Jamestown Foundation. Previously, Rich served at the U.S. Department of State as both a military and civilian advisor, working in the Policy Planning Office and later the Office of the Special Representative for Syria. Before that, he was a member of the National Defense University and Institute for National Security Studies faculty. He also served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Training and Development for the U.S. Security Coordinator in Jerusalem and helped shape interagency discussions and national policy options for transitions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkey, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority. On top of all this, he also spent a decade serving in the U.S. military and diplomatic missions overseas, including combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and deployments in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And we're thrilled to have him back on the program today. Well, that was the Cold War bargain, certainly between the U.S. and not only Egypt, but many of the countries that we worked with strategically, is that we would provide 
security assistance sort of as a quid pro quo for strategic cooperation, not for domestic reform or the human rights performance-based measures. With Egypt, again, the the basic numbers were $1.3 billion of foreign military finance and FMF, which is a military grant, and then some co-production of military equipment and one tanks and whatnot, lots of exercises and things, and sort of a very soft touch with regards to criticizing domestic Egyptian politics. And in return, we got those four things I talked about before, which was Suez Canal, uh, military access, overflights, peace with Israel, lots of exercises, that sort of thing. It wasn't until post-Cold War, and I, I think the Obama administration was the first to do this, that we started decrementing that amount uh, as a result of concerns over democracy, both the electoral piece with the overthrow of Morsi, but also a- allowing freedom of expression, free exercise of press rights and independence of institutions. Again, not problems unique to Egypt, but the, the question in Washington of how much to decrement aid and how much to conditionalize a partnership with the United States based on these human rights indicators. It really wasn't an issue in the case of Egypt until 2009, 10, 11, about the time of Arab Spring and the uprising, Morsi's ascent, and then the Obama administration dealing with that. Egypt has a complicated history with the US, but mildly, spending much of the first half of the Cold War actually aligned with the Soviets. Egypt would go on to help the Soviets spread influence throughout the Middle East and Africa, and even became one of the largest licensed producers of Soviet weapons outside of the USSR. Even today, Egypt still has a massive Russian-licensed arms industry, and provides a lot of the weapons and replacements to Russian allies who still use Soviet-grade equipment. And all this happens whilst at the same time, they keep very close ties with the US, receiving $1.3 billion US dollars in aid annually. So looking at the dichotomy here, how close is Egypt to Russia these days? There were leaks recently to suggest that Egypt would be close enough to Russia to be willing to send them rockets and artillery to help them in their war with Ukraine, but surely they wouldn't want to jeopardize that $1.3 billion the US gives them annually by throwing their lot in with Russia fully. Can you explain what the dynamic is between Egypt, the arms industry, and Russia at the moment? So they have a massive military-industrial complex. The military controls a larger percentage of the national economy than is the case in most Western or frankly, even most Middle Eastern states. Uh, You've got the military with a large footprint in a number of different economic sectors. And of course, they have the ability to produce a large amount of military gear for their own use. And as you pointed out, Russia has been expending artillery, particularly at a rate unseen and unanticipated. So as most Western militaries and the Russian military in its way have narrowed the industrial base and decreased their production capability for things like artillery rounds. Egypt has maintained excess uh, capacity in this regard. So there was some talk of them uh, selling rounds. Look, I I don't think Russia really needs Egypt as a supplier. They've got China to to sell them some things and some other countries that can produce the gunpowder and propellants and things like that. It would be a very bad idea for Egypt to do this. I think if we were to ask people in Cairo, they'd probably say, well, look, business is business. And in the case of Egypt, I think the same logic applies. Why would they not try to make some money when there's a needy customer? This is one of those things that calls for delicate diplomacy on the part of the U.S., uh, where we come in and express how that might actually damage U.S. interests and that Egypt as a country with whom we have close relations should take that into account. This goes back to the issue, though, if we're decrementing our aid to the Egyptians, if we've already said, hey, we're going to punish you for domestic and human rights things, then we go on, uh, go back and what decrement further, I guess, because of the failure failure to provide strategic support or a strategic dalliance with an adversary. Well, we've sort of already started undermining the, the basis of trust upon which that transaction 
rests. So yeah, I, I, I don't think that this is an actual problem so much as a potential problem right now, but we've undercut the leverage we would have to actually hurt Egypt or disincentivize Egypt in this way by already shooting some of those bullets, so to speak, on, on human rights issues. I feel like a lot of people forget that the majority of Egypt is actually within Africa, as geopolitically it orients itself much more toward the Middle East. We're currently seeing more and more players from the Middle East that get more involved in Africa, like the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Turks, which are getting more and more invested into operations throughout the Horn of Africa and the Sahel. Do you think Egypt will also follow this trend and use its frankly quite large military to begin looking at expanding its operations throughout Africa? The Egyptian military is not a power projection or deployable military, really. I mean, they traditionally have failed when they've tried to get involved in theaters right off of their borders. Egypt did provide support to the Haftar side during the Libyan civil war. They have provided some strategic support at different times to other neighbors, but they don't have the sorts of things that you'd look at. So heavy lift helicopters, amphibious landing ships, long haul aircraft, and commando forces that you know that can go into distant theaters, sustain themselves, and train locals or run proxies. They just don't do that. They have pretty heavy conventional forces, mechanized, armored, and whatnot, large infantry formations. But in a sense, it's sort of still a Praetorian military that is existing to stabilize the domestic economy and maintain domestic stability and security. Certainly, they are effective at counter-terror operations in Sinai and other places against quasi-terroristic or terroristic groups, Al-Qaeda remnants or Muslim Brotherhood-linked violent groups that reared their heads in Sinai for a while over the last decade. That they're good at. They're good at sort of fighting that domestic fight. But this is not a country that has the ability to project power deeper into Africa or into the Middle East. They had no real option to get involved with, for instance, the war in Yemen. They were not able to project force uh, down into Ethiopia or Somalia the way that the Turks have with the major Turkish base in Somalia. It's not that it's not a capable military or a large one. It's just not structured to export operations or conduct them in distant theaters like some of the others are. Whilst the Egyptian army and air force complain of a lack of funding all the time, the Egyptian navy is the one that's been notably neglected for a very long time now. But with this discovery of large gas fields to the north of Egypt in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, and regional rivals like Turkey and Israel already having large navies in these same waters, do you think Egypt will reprioritize the buildup of a domestic navy? Or do you think they'll instead choose diplomatic means to try and make peace with players like Turkey so they don't have to try and compete in these waters? What options does Cairo have in front of them? Two things. First, I think you're right with regards to diplomatic rapprochement between Egypt and Turkey. I think both sides want to avoid a military race, if you will, or escalation in the Med. And both are interested in finding a modus vivendi there. There are other countries that have less space to reconcile between those two. And of course, for, for Egypt and, and Turkey, I think the main issue is Libya first because there's energy assets there that are more accessible and more proven than those in the Med. And Egypt's already got this energy condominium from gas fields that it shares with Israel and exports through Israel that Turkey has no claim on and really no interest in. So what there is is an ability to find economic solutions and demarcations in the Med between the two, not relying on military power or naval power to resolve those. And 
the other thing is, uh, again, in Libya, everybody's tired of the political impasse there and the two players with the most traction on the ground and with the ability to bring the parties together are, in fact, Egypt and Turkey. I have some uh, Egyptian friends that I talk to that say that the, the level of discussions between Ankara and Cairo have been rising in this regard and that there's a better chance for these two coming to an understanding that supports a unity government and, and progress in Tripoli than has been the case for a long, long time. Now, the other part is Egypt is aware that it's... Uh, naval investment program is very low. I have some friends that have been on contract going to help refurbish some Egyptian ships lately, but naval investment and construction is a much longer term project and frankly, much more expensive than either ground forces or air forces. So I think there will be some modernization of the Egyptian Navy. I think they're already working on that, but I wouldn't look at a major force expansion. Given the economic problems that Egypt has, it's just not practical at this stage to build a bunch of new ships or to expand the operational tempo of those that they have. A lot of this, though, will hinge on the decisions of just one man, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, the Egyptian general turned president. Now, you've been watching and working with many of these leaders in the region now for decades. So from your experience, how does al-Sisi compare to his predecessors and to his regional rivals? And what does this tell us about his decision-making process during periods of crisis? Sisi is a canny operator. I was lucky enough to observe him in some high-level meetings a few years back in Cairo. He's not a person who relies on notes from his staff. He's thinking, he's engaging, he's working through problems. He's also an experienced military man. I think if you compare him to, say, late-stage Mubarak, who had obviously been in power for a long, long time and, frankly, was very old and very tired near the end of his tenure, or Sadat before his assassination, he's still relatively robust. And I think because of his background as a military man and with the intelligence services, he's got a firmer hold on the security services and the ability to prevent any internal threat from coming up with him. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say how the Egyptian street will move. I don't see signs yet, despite the dissatisfaction over the direction of the economy. I don't see anything similar to what we saw in 2010, 2011, 2012, that level of popular protest. Remember, it was a naive Middle East and a naive Egypt, in a sense, back then that thought, you know, if we just got rid of the old leadership, these problems would be solved. And of course, Morsi came in and they had several years of sort of lack of unified policy direction, some bad security policies that led to a flare up in Sinai, also external problems and what looked like to most Egyptians an attempt to undo the pillars of the social contract. I don't think any of that's in play here. It's just a government that's not really solving the long-term problems. I don't think that Sisi is going to face that same level of threat. And I think, frankly, he is better uh, situated to deal with street protests and, and violence if it comes up. Now, from a Western perspective, of course, this is not necessarily a, a good thing in that much of his social control has come about because he's better than his predecessors at controlling civil society and the communications environment and things like that. Thus, the concerns over democratic progress. But I think Sisi at this stage is in control and more than capable and competent enough to deal with the, any unrest that's caused by the, the current dynamics. So two of Sisi's major backers are the Saudis and the Emiratis, who not only donate lots of money to the Egyptian administration as well as Egyptian private business, but they also place a lot of money into Egyptian banks to try and keep the Egyptian currency afloat. But why do they have such an interest in Egypt? What are they hoping to get out of this transaction? Well, Egypt for the Middle East, in some sense, is like it's a large multinational because there are Egyptians. Egypt it has the densest population of any Arab country. They produce a huge amount of sort of middle class and they have a good educational system. So they produce bureaucrats and teachers and engineers and journalists. They have a very large television industry and movie industry. So in some ways, countries in the Gulf 
other Arab countries that have sparser population, but maybe don't have some of the the teachers and the bureaucrats, those mid-level people, and, and also a large working class that can go out and work on construction projects and so forth. You'll find Egyptians all throughout the Gulf and in the Levant and other places. So I think that nobody wants to see Egypt become a source of instability. They want Egypt to continue to be a source of educated talent and workforce. And they also want it to be, if not a booming dynamic economy, because that doesn't seem to be in the cards with its very large population and sort of sclerotic economic management, they at least want to see it getting by uh, so that it becomes not a source of instability for the region. If there were to be an economic collapse and sort of major infighting or something like that in Egypt, you'd see spillover effects throughout the Middle East, uh, not just those countries that are next to it, but because of the large Egyptian presence everywhere else and likely polarization of the Egyptian expat communities living in these places, it, it would be dangerous. So nobody wants to see that. And I, and I think that there's this web of connection between the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian workforce and many other governments in the Arab world, especially in the Gulf. And I, I think that makes them, again, too big to fail. It's, it's an investment that they want to keep going even at cost. There's a lot of speculations and worries at the moment about the strength of the Egyptian economy, but how do you think it's traveling along? And what would be some of the signs you would look for that Egypt is about to enter very turbulent economic waters? The street in Egypt has high degree of patience. So I think inability to do fundamental services, economic services that, that the people expect, which is you know the provision of bread and cereals, uh, collection of trash and that sort of thing, public security. I, it won't attract my attention as a serious economic problem until we start to see suspension of economic activity, general strikes or sectoral strikes as a result of people saying the government's not meeting our basic needs and people aren't eating. Uh, Egyptians can suffer, their threshold for suffering is much higher uh, than in Western societies. So if people start taking to the streets, it's going to be because they're hungry or the basic services are not being met, and that will attract my attention. As For now, I think they'll muddle through their ability to do so, despite what look like severe economic headwinds to the rest of us is, I think, established. It's always been shocking to me to see the raw power of economics at work and how quickly things can snowball out of control. How a nation with a huge military and a country that was once the torchbearer for Arab nationalism is now in a dire position simply because of bad economic choices. But can Sisi fix this? Will the military back him to do it? Or was the time to do this five years ago? Now it's simply too late. Well, to answer all those questions, we're doing our third guest. Part three, in search of former glory. The role of the military dates back to modern Egypt and the coup against the king in 1952 and the direction that, that Egypt took after then. So there's always been in the political system, the military playing an important role. And over the years, that's also spilled over into, into having an economic role. It's not always been exactly the same. It's varied under different presidencies. But at the moment, there's a strong military presence in the economy takes the role of land development, real estate, takes the role of manufacturing, originally designated as something that would be an autonomous armaments industry and then uh, industries and manufacturing and farming even to give a sort of self-sufficient source of supply for the military itself. And it's gradually branched out into to many different areas. The engineering core of the army is very heavily involved in a lot of infrastructure projects. 
But uh, you know, going back to the question of how you can quantify this, it is a matter of guesswork because there's very little transparency in terms of the revenue generated by these projects, the tax status, and the sources of finance. David Bunner is an associate fellow for the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House and an analyst with a specialization in the politics, economics, and business of the Middle East and North Africa. Previously, he worked as the regional director for the Middle East at the Economist Intelligence Unit and for Mead Magazine. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. As with any country, the geography is important to the economy and it has advantages and disadvantages. The common description of Egypt as being the gift of the Nile relates to the importance of the Nile flowing through the country and the very fertile Nile Delta region where most of the agriculture is concentrated. That said, apart from the the Nile Valley and the Delta, most of Egypt is desert and it does have a very large population which last year crossed the 100 million mark. So there are limitations on how much land can be devoted to agriculture and that's been encroached over the years also by the increasing population. They've made efforts to spread out, reclaim lands, provide irrigation systems for desert areas and that I guess has had mixed results. You also have a legacy of the initial infrastructure came you know, during the Ottoman period and then when the British and French were the effective colonial powers in the 19th century. The importance of cotton grown in Egypt and then Sudan meant that a lot of the railway infrastructure was north-south and now that's been kind of changed as new projects going from the Suez region across and up to, to Alexandria, a new high-speed railway there. Of course, the other big fact of geography for Egypt, a very important one, of course, is the is the Suez Canal and how important that is as a link for world trade. And I think that you can say in general with Egypt that they've had obviously challenges, but also advantages. And some things have worked, some things haven't worked well enough. So that is why ultimately they wanted to aspire to being big exporter globally. They haven't yet achieved that. I wouldn't minimize it, but they could do a lot better and a lot of their exports are primary materials rather than the manufacturers. So it's, it's a mix if, you, if you're trying to put the geographical elements in. The thing is that this isn't Egypt's first bout with financial disaster, even in recent history. With a massive external debt crisis starting in 1985, another debt crisis in 2011, bailouts in 2012, another bailout in 2019, further economic problems in 2020 as the pandemic wiped out tourism in the country, and an even deeper financial crisis in 2022 stemming from the conflict in Ukraine and Egypt's reliance on both Ukraine and Russia for grain and foodstuffs. So when it comes to the current financial predicament Egypt finds itself in, how much of the crisis is attributable to mismanagement or army corruption, and how much stems from much larger factors within the economy. If you've got an economy which actually is in trouble and has been in trouble for a long time, we're going back to the 70s when the economy started to open up, there was a very big push for foreign investment, but there was also a big increase in, in external debt. So there were debt crises at various points over the last 20, 30, 40 years. So there's been this reliance on external finance, which is sort of crushing weight on the economy for a long time. And you could say that you know that whole process of opening up of uh, a new kind of mercantile class did create a dependency, a reliance on external debt that has caused problems. And then a lot of the wealth, of course, has been concentrated in the hands of, you know, it's not just the military, but it's a sort of privileged class of highly successful businesses that have privileged relationships with the state. I think it's difficult to pin it all on corruption or on 
any single cause, but in general, where Egypt is now is the result of decisions taken by narrow political leaders, and some of those decisions have been poor, and some of them not so poor. Egypt seems to be pinning a lot of its hope into the oil and gas sector to be its saviour, and many other external players here are as well, with the sector largely focusing on the deposits sitting in the East Mediterranean, in the area being claimed by Cyprus, Greece, Turkey, Israel, Syria and Egypt. And these investments are already beginning to draw the lion's share of the future foreign direct investment, which is not completely surprising seeing the high price of gas at the moment. But this sector though is still yet to fully get off the ground, and also only hires a very small amount of Egyptians, so it may not be a huge help in tackling the massive unemployment crisis currently in the country. So do you think this plan to double down on gas will prove effective for the Egyptian economy, or will it only make a small select group of Egyptians very wealthy? Over the long term, yes, a lot of foreign direct investment has been directed towards the oil and gas sector. But if you look at um, 2022, which was a, quite a good year for foreign direct investment, it came in at around $10 billion for the first time in a long time it had been that high. When the commercial terms were improved in 2013-14, so you did have companies that came in and did invest a lot. These included the Italian company Eni, which found the Zorro field, which really uh, you know, turned around the Egyptian East Med gas sector. So if you wind forward, some of the costs associated with developing um, those fields are now being repatriated. So, so that's why, in fact, uh, FDI from the oil and gas sector was, uh, was net negative last year. Where the FDI has been concentrated recently, a, a lot of it has been in acquisitions by, by Gulf Arab countries, sovereign wealth funds, and particularly those in Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia. So that, that's a sort of recent change in the pattern. You know, looking at the East Med gas, that's had its ups and downs. By the mid-1990s, they've started to export. They built two LNG plants in the early 2000s, but that didn't last long. By the end of the 2000s, it was clear that there was not enough investment going into refining new fields after old ones matured. There was a very high level of domestic consumption. And we, we get to around 2014-15, Egypt, uh, or 20, even 13, that Egypt actually had a, a net deficit, was having to import gas, you know, one point from Qatar. So that was turned around 2013. They've gone back up into a surplus as of about three years ago. And they've done quite well last year and the year before out of the boom in the LNG sector. But production has started to tail off again. The foreign exchange crisis in Egypt means that uh, foreign companies are now complaining they're getting paid late. LNG boom has started to level off. You know, the prices aren't so high as they were. And the, the reason why Egypt is now managing still to export reasonable volumes of LNG is because it's actually importing more or less or almost uh, the equivalent amount from Israel through a pipeline that was originally built to pipe gas to Israel. So, you know, that's changed around. There is gas in Israel. There's gas offshore Cyprus. There's potentially more gas in Egyptian Mediterranean waters. But the mechanics of putting that all together and turning Egypt into a sort of hub for major exports, that hasn't really materialized. It's, you know, it's taking a long time to make any sort of formal agreements the Israelis are now inclined to build a floating LNG plant in Israeli waters rather than creating a kind of mechanism for exporting their gas. So that sort of sense of a collaborative venture has fallen by the wayside. It is an important part of Egypt's resources, but unless they find more gas and develop more gas, it's going to be an ephemeral benefit. 
With the gas sector not looking like the silver bullet to solve Egypt's problems, most experts are warning that Egypt will have to go back to the IMF for an even larger bailout. And with that, the IMF is going to ask them for a number of harsh economic reforms that will undoubtedly hurt the living standards of the average Egyptian. In anticipation, throughout Egypt, people are already protesting, and the government is already worried enough about the flashback to shut down Tahir Square, the very square where the Arab Spring protesters gathered to remove previous leader Hosni Mubarak. So if Sisi has to go back to the International Monetary Fund to get this loan, will he be able to take these bailouts without sparking massive pushback from the Egyptian populace? When you look at the IMF program, there's a sense that the IMF will come in and they would demand a lot of very tough measures. There certainly are strict targets that actually are set by the host governments to get the IMF's approval that are quite tough. But there's also a big emphasis in the way the IMF works and the World Bank works these days on making sure that there are adequate social protection mechanisms. The whole point of reforms such as ending energy subsidies is that you make the process of providing social benefits to the vulnerable groups more efficient and whereas a blanket fuel subsidy system will tend to actually benefit the better off classes. The other very controversial, I guess, more controversial part of the IMF program going back to 2016 is exchange rate flexibility. You have a situation leading up to the flotation of the currency in 2016. You had an official rate which is more or less fixed but most, say, remittances or a lot of transactions went through the black market, in which the cost of buying dollars on that market was considerably higher than the official rate. So there was this one-off devaluation in 2016 that resulted in a spurt of inflation. In some ways, that was a, a reform that worked. One of the snags was that flexibility meant that the rate would move in response to the market. So in the early stages, the you know the central bank was reluctant to allow the rate to strengthen too much. And then when it came under pressure, it kept it fixed. Another side effect of the IMF agreement is that this is supposed to make Egypt attractive for private portfolio investment, essentially directed towards financing public debt. So what happened in Egypt is that they tended to keep their interest rates relatively high, and a lot of short-term foreign investment in Egyptian government debt came in. Now, the problem with that is a kind of hot money situation and that when some things change, that money goes out very quickly and leaves a big hole in the accounts. And this, of course, did happen in Egypt and other emerging markets. But Egypt was a particularly harsh adjustment because they already had really quite high interest rates. So uh, the money started to go out when there were expectations that the US would tighten interest rates in 2021. And then there was a huge outflow again after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So Egypt was in really serious trouble that its rather comfortable foreign reserve position suddenly looked much less comfortable. $14 billion went out in the first quarter, $13 billion came in in short-term deposits from the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. So that plugged the hole for a bit, but then they had to go into an IMF agreement, where again, the question of exchange rate flexibility came up. So, I mean, since March last year, the exchange rate has depreciated by half, and there actually is a kind of gap between the current rate and the, and the black market rate. I think probably the people who are hurting the most and people that could have been in the middle, and that, of course, you know, ultimately could rebound in terms of some sort of backlash against the regime. But you know, the problem there is that you know, Egypt's been through a very un, 
stable period since 2011. And of course, the security state in Egypt is so all-encompassing that it's very difficult for anyone to contemplate organizing any sort of widespread protests because people would very quickly be rounded up and thrown into jail. That makes for a very kind of brittle political situation. And I think, you know, from Sisi's point of view, all he can hope is he can still maintain enough external support and that at some point the economy will get better. And that's pretty well the message that he, he delivers. It's pretty unsatisfactory, but I don't think there's much alternative that's realistically available. Where do you think this takes us over the next few years? Where they are now and how difficult the economic conditions are, I think you'd have to say that there's a fair risk of it becoming less stable. Whether that's going to be a phase or whether that will be some kind of quite serious upheaval, you know, obviously you can't tell. As I said before, there's this kind of brittleness to the whole system that leads to sort of question as to whether at some point, you know, maybe coming to the end of his term, that there will be some kind of much more serious upheaval. Everything about this will be about timing. Go too late, and the crisis worsens, making it harder to pull back. But go too early, and you may spook even more of the remaining investors still here in Egypt, and push businesses into a fire sale mentality, having foreign actors, some of which aren't friendly, buy up huge parts of the national institutions. Whatever option CC picks will have to be timed right. But when should CC make his move, and what moves does he need to make? Well, to answer that, we do know our final guest. Part four, too big to fail. No, it's extremely worrisome. We have this example of 2011 where no one expected the uprising to occur when it did, but the economy is terrible right now. The pound is depreciated 50%. Egyptians are suffering. And the leadership is not responding in the way that it could. And Sisi, President Sisi, may be expecting a bailout from the Gulf in terms of his privatization plan. But that seems not to be transpiring as he would like, or as quickly as he would like, certainly. He's recently visited Saudi Arabia, met with Mohammed bin Salman. The, uh, he has a very good relationship with President Mbizi in the UAE, who just visited him in Cairo. But he needs cash, and the IMF is postponed their review of their program, and the program is predicated on privatization of 32 companies and $4 billion in investments. And that progress, the delay, is certainly because of CCS slow rolling that policy change, because I think he's worried what the military response will be, because the military is a prominent factor in the economy. Ben Fishman is a senior fellow with the Washington Institute and a member of the Program on Arab Politics. Before joining the organization, he previously served on the U.S. National Security Council, where he held several posts, including Director for North Africa and Jordan, Director for Libya, and Executive Assistant to Ambassador Dennis Ross. As the Director for Libya, he coordinated U.S. support for Libya's revolution and supported President Obama's 2013 visit to Jordan, as well as coordinating the $1 billion U.S. assistance package to the Hashemite Kingdom. All of this comes on top of serving in the U.S. Department of State in the office charged with developing policy toward Iran and the Gulf states. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. 
The Saudis has been the transitional savior of Egypt as well. They invested huge amounts along with the Emiratis to stabilize the country after the revolution. That was part of their being scared of the Muslim Brotherhood takeover. But the Muslim Brotherhood has effectively not a political force anymore in Egypt. Fundamentally, Sisi thinks Egypt is too big to fail. But Saudi, uh, certainly, and maybe the uh, Emirates as well, are playing a game because they're not convinced that they want him to make these reforms. And if he's not going to make these reforms, he'll be in trouble. Now, you asked him about China and Russia. I think Russia doesn't have the ability to put in the funds that Sisi needs. The U.S. spends over a billion dollars a year based on the Camp David agreement, but that's primarily goes to the military. A lot of the economic crisis has started and precipitated by the Ukraine crisis and the lack of tourism revenues and COVID, obviously. But CC has fundamentally mismanaged the economy. And that goes to his mega projects, uh, spending over billions of dollars on unnecessarily on the new capital. And the military gets spending for unnecessarily equipment. So in general, CC can make these reforms and cut back, but he's beholden to the military as much as he controls the military. So it's a fundamental challenge for him over the coming period to navigate these domestic challenges. China is obviously a very interesting question. They're not heavily invested in Egypt to date, but the terms of their loans, the terms of their support is questionable. And I think he'd much rather depend on his traditional sources of funding than take the risk of going to China. So you mentioned the US aid programs there. And so far, since 1978, the U.S. has given Egypt nearly $50 billion in military aid and over $30 billion in economic aid, which is quite a substantial investment compared to many of the other nations in this region. So what is the U.S. objective here in Egypt? Well, we have a traditional relationship with Egypt. President Trump called Sisi his favorite dictator. Obviously, didn't care about human rights and democracy. The Biden administration has nominally a different approach to global foreign policy and democracy support. But in practice, in the Middle East, there's shown little evidence of taking a stand on Egypt, now recently more Tunisia, other areas. So what traditionally the U.S. gets from uh, Egypt is first and foremost, maintaining the peace with Israel. That is not to be anything that is underestimated because That border security stability is fundamental to the region's security, in addition to opening and freedom of movement over the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Now, currently, this administration has prioritized their Egyptian relationship based on the Israeli-Egypt situation. And fundamentally, the Israelis want And Egypt can be effective to a certain degree in keeping Gaza or Hamas relatively quiet. When there are tensions with Hamas, as we just saw during Ramadan and the rocket fire that came from Gaza, mostly was from the north and from the West Bank, that's where the tensions are. Egypt plays a role in tamping down Hamas. 
Other than that, the Egyptian benefits to the U.S. security relationship and presence in the Middle East, I feel, are less important than they once were. The administration, successive administrations from Biden, Trump, and Obama have placed greater importance to other areas of the Middle East or beyond the Middle East, China, Russia, and now obviously Ukraine crisis. But they continue to be drawn in on crises such as the Iran nuclear file and Arab-Israeli instability. And if you think of that, those priorities, Egypt becomes less significant than it once was. One of the majorly important aspects to Egyptian geopolitics is the guaranteeing of security for the Suez Canal, which sees nearly 12% of global trade pass through every single day. But between ISIS fighters in the Sinai Peninsula and terrorists exuding out of the Libyan civil war to the west of the country, how is Egypt attempting to maintain security over the Suez Canal area? So outside of Syria and Iraq, during the ISIS takeover of that region, the only territory they or their affiliates controlled was in Sinai and then the middle of Libya at a certain point until they got driven out by Libyans with the assistance from us and the, the Brits mainly. They have a huge army. They have a well-equipped army. They keep buying stuff that they can use for conventional war, where the prospects are limited of conventional war needs. But they have this problem with ISIS or extremists in the Sinai. I would say it's in a steady state. They don't win, but they don't prevent them from really expanding. And as long as that situation maintains itself, I think that's okay by us. As part of the Camp David Accords, the Egyptians are only allowed certain equipment and personnel in the Sinai, but the Israelis have been much more flexible on that because of the ISIS threat. With your background working on Libya, you would have been in the room watching Egypt's moves very closely. Now, we have two entire episodes unpacking the Libyan civil war, but really quickly for anyone not aware, the Libyan civil war mostly breaks down into two sides, the Tripoli-based government, the one recognized by the UN and backed by Turkey, and the other side is the Tobruk-based government backed by Russia, Sudan, the UAE, and Egypt. Now, there was a period of time when Haftar, the leader of the Tobruk-based government, looked like he might collapse. His offensives toward Tripoli had failed and his forces were on the run. And at that period, Egypt began deploying large amounts of troops to their western border, poised to send troops over the border into Libya to help stabilize Haftar's front line and prevent the Tripoli forces from reaching Tobruk. In the end, though, a combination of Sudanese mercenaries, Wagner forces, and Russian air power managed to blunt the Tripoli offensive and solidify the lines around the city of Sirte, and Haftar's forces were able to turn around and dig in. It's a bit of an alternative reality here, but how successful do you think that offensive by the Egyptians would have been if they'd actually committed to it and put their troops across the border to defend Haftar? And what is Egypt's position on Libya today? In terms of Libya, Egypt is probably the main obstacle for getting a fair election process that can move the country forward. There are good signs there that Egypt is now beginning to reconcile with the Turks. And then that process has multiple avenues, but the fact that they're discussing and realizing their mutual interests in Libya, which they're basically on the opposite sides of, the fact that they're talking in terms of mutual interest and they use those phrases because 
of the economic benefits for each of them for a stable Libyan government. Egypt benefit from pre-war millions of workers, several hundred thousand at least workers in eastern Libya. Turkey obviously has deep economic business connections with Libya as well. The fact that they're talking about that is very, very substantial in the best development that Libya has experienced over the last few months. That wasn't the case during the civil war. That wasn't the case in the last year of efforts to get the international community behind this new UN-led effort to precipitate elections again. In terms of military aspects, yes, they could walk west. But again, I don't think they like protecting the military. They've participated in supply. They participated in facilitating Emirati presence. And even in 2014, 2015, bombing Tripoli in its environments. But that's a long time ago. They want the Libyans to fight it out themselves, but they don't want to lose Egyptians in the process. So there's a major process of normalization starting to get going at the moment between Egypt and Turkey, with the hope to eventually normalize relations between the two states. But why is this coming out now? Is this just so they won't sabotage each other's investments in the gas deposits for the Eastern Mediterranean? Or is this really the beginning of a reset of relations? Well, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. And obviously, it'll all be contingent on the Turkish election coming up and whether Erdogan maintains his rule. But say Erdogan stays. I think there's a less of a sensitivity on the ideological front. Turkey's hosting less of that activity. They're certainly not broadcasting in the same way against Egypt. And then obviously the foreign ministers have exchanged visits and there's plans to reopen embassies. It's good that they recognize these mutual interests. And I think there's a lot of economic reasoning behind this. Take away the ideological thing. They didn't like each other. They haven't talked to each other for years until the World Cup, ironically. So there's a general recognition that the issues that divided them are maybe not so significant after all. And the easing of tensions in the East Med, and particularly as, as I said before in Libya, I think stands to gain a lot for both of the countries. A lot of this tension originally stemmed from the Turkish support for the Muslim Brotherhood, who took over the power in Egypt after the Arab Spring, and then was subsequently couped out of power by Sisi. If down the line the Muslim Brotherhood were to regain political momentum inside Egypt and pose a real threat to Sisi, do you think Turkey would look to back them and encourage them to oust the current government inside Cairo, or would Ankara prioritize stability and cooperation and look to stay out of Egyptian politics, even if the opposition would be ideologically closer to Turkey than Egypt? Well, I wouldn't overestimate Turkey's ability to manipulate Egypt. Saudi is another animal, as well as the Emirates, as they demonstrated before in supporting Sisi when he first overthrew Morsi. They are obviously interested in maintaining stability and ideologically committed to maintaining the non-Islamist identity of Egyptian politics. I think that if there's a fundamental threat to Egypt's stability and it comes from a popular uprising, it's going to be unpredictable as it was in 2011. If we see widespread unrest and growing protests, certainly Sisi will be under more 
pressure from his internal military. I was going to say rivals, but he doesn't really, at least we can't see or identify rivals, but they could emerge. And that would be a trigger for either a mass crackdown. And Egyptians have demonstrated, not in 2011 with the military, but they demonstrated in, uh, unfortunately, in 2013 to 14, that they'll kill a lot of civilians to make their point, that will be a worrisome sign. But we're not quite there yet. There is time for him to privatize and get these reforms underway, but unfortunately been slow to transpire. And I think what's happening now is he's still navigating the internal politics of selling companies that won't over affect the military and sort of gaining cash. Sisi often touts Egypt as too big to fail and too homogenous to split. But how certain are you about that? I think he's banking on it. He's banking on his traditional partners saying it's too big to fail. But MBS is not the same as what happened in 2011. Now, if he's confronted, this is the Saudis, of course, if they're confronted with Egypt that is failing, maybe he'll change his calculus. The Saudis are internally focused now. You see they're playing all sides. They've done this reconciliation with Iran. They're trying to end the Yemen war and focus more internally and transform Saudi Arabia. And that includes not overinvesting in other areas as long as they're reasonably okay. But if he's confronted with Egypt failing, that may not be the case. MBS and others are strangely aligned with us and pushing for him to actually make these IMF reforms. And it's kind of unusual for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to be aligned on economic reforms in another country, let alone Egypt. CC is in a tough position. He then needs to implement the biggest reforms to Egyptian society since the end of colonialism, or watch these economic problems snowball and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the longer he waits, the worse it's likely to get. And I'm sure as he lays awake at night, he also realizes that he'll need the military on side. And that if he implements the reforms without the military, he may very well be replaced by another general, the same way that he came to power originally. A general who may be happy to see the economy plummet further, if it means that he can make some more money from it. But moving this much of your economy from state assets to private assets can have disastrous effects. As history shows us, If he puts too many assets on the private markets with no protections, he may see foreign nations and ruthless industry tycoons buy up everything in a fire sale like the end of the USSR and birth a new class of oligarchs who will corrupt and distort Egyptian society for generations to come. But if you leave some of these protections in and try to prevent these new private companies coming in and immediately halving everyone's wages, well, now you've got millions more on the streets unemployed and putting the blame for their lack of job squarely on you. Incidents like that are the recipe for revolutions. Revolutions that could bring you Western-style democracy, but could net you another round of the Muslim Brotherhood or a hardcore Islamic movement. As all of us remember from Iran, that hardcore theocracy began with the cost of living protest. From here, everything feels like a roll of the dice for Sisi, and none of the options are particularly good. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. We've been wanting to talk about Egypt for a long time now, so I'm glad we finally got the chance to do so. And if you're wondering why we didn't talk about the tensions between Egypt and Ethiopia over the Nile and the Grand Renaissance Dam, 
Well, that's because we have a whole other piece on it in episode three of our Green Line miniseries titled Water Wars. So we figured we'd save the time talking about that so we can fit more in this episode. But if you did come here looking to hear about the tensions over the water in the Nile, make sure to go check out that piece directly after this one. And if you wished you'd been kept up to date and found out that we did a whole nother piece on the Nile beforehand, you can usually keep up to date with everything we're doing on our social media, which you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Pod. Or if you can follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money to help myself and the team keep this thing going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this week I'd like to thank Scott Amig, Trenton Way, Shane, Joseph Lucinto, and Greg Forsyth, who are the latest Patreons to sign up as of time recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners, and we cannot thank them enough. But for now, this episode on the financial crisis in Egypt is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Struggle for Egypt, From Nasser to Tahir Square, by Stephen A. Cook, for a look at Egypt leading up to the Arab Spring. The second is Tweets from Tahir, by Nadia Idol, which compiles a whole series of tweets from people during the Arab Spring, putting together an amazing real timeline of events playing out. And the third is The Burning Shores, Inside the Battle for the New Libya, by friend of the show, Frederick Wary, for a look at the Libyan civil war and its impacts on surrounding neighbours. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Marit Mabuk, Rich Altson, David Butter, and Ben Fishman. Once again, I couldn't have asked for a better panel, so thanks to all of you for jumping on. I also want to give a thanks to my staff, Webb McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Danielle Zavella, Genevieve Donnellan-May, Nate Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garvery, and Robbie Sutton, a research assistant of writers, Jemmy Tano, a media director, Rahul Devanarayanan, our OSINT analyst, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Derek Henry Flood, our deputy editor, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Rissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. It really is an absolutely amazing team of people, and we're incredibly lucky to have them. The Redline will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. Until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.